Welcome to the Rock Church and World Outreach Center. We pray that this message will strengthen and encourage you. Now here's a message from one of our special guests. I have a message that's really strong on my heart tonight. And um, it's something that I, I've just really, it's just been in the last couple of days that, that I've been meditating about this, thinking about this, uh, you know, kind of working this message inside my own soul, inside my own life. And, and it's based on a scripture. Uh, it kind of begins with Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Romans chapter 12 and verse 15, where Paul said, rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. And if you're at home watching online, you just say what we say here, okay? Because you're just as much a part of this as all the rest of us. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you know what that immediately tells us? That we don't just live by ourselves for ourselves. That there is something in, in God's plan, God putting us in, in families, God putting us in church families, God putting us in relationship with one another, that when something happens to you, it, it has an effect on me. And when something happens to me, it, it, it should have some effect on you. And this reminds me of another verse, and we're not going to take time to look at it, but you can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Bible says that God has made us a family, a body, so that when one member rejoices, the other members rejoice with it. And when one member suffers, another member suffers with it. Do you ever stub your toe or step on a Lego with a barefoot? or do something that just hurt like your foot or something like that. Did you know that when you hurt your foot, your thumb did not laugh? When the Bible says, and, and to me this is so meaningful, like uh, I, I loved uh, Pastor Jess's description on the video, what would you call it, a crazy, wacky something year? You know, how many of you know that, how many of you say, I have no idea what she's talking about? No, we all know what she's talking about. This has been an, an, an unbelievable year. But when, when somebody in the body of Christ, your brother, your sister, has something that causes them to rejoice. And you know what, as rough of a year as this has been, I know some people, this has been a great year for them. And I have other friends, this has been a horrible year for them. How many of you know somebody that this has really been a great year for them? Let me see your hand. You know somebody that's experienced some amazing favor, great blessing. You know, I know some people it's been that kind of a year, a great year. But I also know people, this has been like, a, 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 you know, just a nightmare of a year. How many of you know somebody that has been that kind of a year for you? And, you know, I, I'm not here to talk about myself, but, you know, really we've had some, some favor and blessing on our life this year that has just caused us almost to want to pinch ourselves. 
you know, God, you're being so good to us. But I'll be honest with you, I, I kind of hesitate to say that or, you know, whatever, because I know, man, somebody, this has been a horrible year for them. And I don't want to be sitting here, you know, oh boy, look how wonderful we've been blessed. When I know it's not been that way for them. And it, it's challenging sometimes to rejoice with those who rejoice when maybe it hasn't been a good year for you. Maybe when somebody else is rejoicing, you've been tempted to feel envious. Have you ever been envious of somebody else's blessing? Maybe you've been praying for something. You've been desiring something and you haven't seen it in your life, but then all of a sudden somebody else, oh, they're praising God, they're celebrating, they're rejoicing. And, and you know, listen, we're all human, aren't we? You know, we can pretend to be super spiritual and all that, but we all have flesh, right? Yes. And there can be something in our flesh that says, God, why did you bless them? I know they're not as committed as I am. I know they're not as faithful as I am. They have not been serving God for as long as I have. And why did they get blessed? And why did I not get blessed? If we're not careful, we will lose the ability to rejoice with those that rejoice. Because to be honest, there's something in our human nature apart from the new birth and apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit and apart from the influence of the Word of God, there's part of us that is just flesh. And we just, we want to feel sorry for ourselves. We, we want to throw a pity party for ourselves and instead of rejoicing with those that rejoice. And you know, and we can also find ourselves in a situation where when things are going well for us, we don't want to weep with those that weep. Man, we don't want them raining on our party. We don't even want to be around them because, you know, that takes the edge off of my personal individual celebration. But you know what this verse reminds us of? Is that none of us live just for ourselves. None of us just exist for our own personal comfort, our own personal anything. We're to be genuinely concerned and, and sincerely connected to one another. So I want to talk tonight just a little bit about what does it mean to rejoice with those that rejoice? What does it mean to weep with those that weep? And what happens when... Maybe the blessing that you're looking for in your life seems to land on somebody else. And what about when you get some great blessing and, and there's somebody else that doesn't get that same blessing? How do we handle that? I want us to look in Acts chapter 12. And uh, honestly, this I don't see, hear this preached or taught very much, but it's something that's, that's pretty powerful. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to begin reading from the New Living Translation. It says, about that time, King Herod. Now, when you hear the word Herod, if you know the Bible very well, what do you think? Do you think good guy? No. You know, the, the Herodian dynasty, there were several different Herods. And, uh, you know, one of them, Herod the Great, I think, is the one that when Jesus was born, he was so fearful that somebody might take his power, you know, some other king of the Jews, that he sent soldiers to Bethlehem and had all the children, male children under the year age of two, 
uh, put to death. Not a good guy. Another Herod uh, cut the head off of John the Baptist. And now we have yet another Herod, Herod Agrippa, began to persecute. The New King James says he began to harass some believers in the church. And he had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. Now I want you to notice that's all that's said about it. How many verses did we just read? Two. Doesn't seem like a lot of attention is given to this. If you were John, I think you'd like a little more said about your brother. If you were Zebedee, the father of James and John, or Salome, the mother of James and John, I think you'd like your son honored a little bit more than that. But it's just a... And please understand, I'm not criticizing the Bible. I'm not criticizing Luke. I'm, not, I'm certainly not criticizing the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture. But just from a human emotional standpoint, that's just pretty stark. James got his head cut off. Next verse. Doesn't seem very flowery, does it? Doesn't seem real tender and soothing and comforting. I mean, it's just a boom statement of fact. No elaboration. Doesn't say anything about how did the church respond? How many people came to John and said, oh, John, we're so sorry that James, your brother, was, was so cruelly put to death. Doesn't say anything about who came to James' mother. Salome, the father, Zebedee, and offered condolences and support. And I'm sure that happened, but we just don't read anything about it. Somebody probably wept, and we can only assume that they wept with them. But the next verse, it begins to get really interesting because it says, when Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he arrested Peter. Now, how many of you know Peter was the most popular? Peter was the celebrity preacher in the early church. Now, what's interesting is that the, who are the three big disciples? Peter, James, and John. But you know, we just don't read much about James. But you know, God loved James just as much as he loved Peter. But Peter's the one that gets all the attention. Peter's the one that's always in the spotlight. Often it was because he was saying something really dumb. But still, he's in the spotlight. He's the outspoken one. He's the gregarious one. He's the loud one. Well, James and John were called the sons of thunder, so they were probably pretty loud too. But boy, they just couldn't hold a candle to Peter. But Peter gets arrested. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he, Herod, imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. So when Herod arrested Peter, they took 16 soldiers, four per squad, and they rotated. 
And we, we find out in just a minute that, that two of them would be chained to Peter day and night. And then there would be one at one door and one at the next. Those four soldiers would have a shift and then there would be another shift and another shift and another shift and they'd just keep rotating. You say, well, why was Herod... I mean, that seems like a lot of security. That seems like a pretty over, you know, overdoing the uh, guarding this prisoner, you know, that type of thing. Well, Herod knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead once. And he didn't want to risk something similar happening, some kind of supernatural, miraculous type of thing. And it says Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. Question, did the church pray for James? Probably. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. How many of you know the church probably was a little bit rattled? The church was probably a little bit upset that James had been beheaded. They're, they're feeling this pressure. They're feeling this intimidation from, you know, the authorities and, and that type of thing. So while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Here's something to think about. How many of you have had some restless time this year? How many of you have had some time where, man, things don't look good. It looks like things might get really bad in this regard and maybe kept you up at night. You don't have to raise your hand, but, but I would guess that probably much of the population of our country has had some fear, has had some uh, times where they've just kind of felt everything's out of whack and, you know, fear about what might happen and things of that nature. But Peter's, the night before his trial, he's asleep. Kind of reminds me of Jesus being asleep on the boat in the middle of the storm. Now, the last time there'd been a big trial, it was Jesus' trial, biblically speaking. And um, how long did they wait between the trial and the execution? Zero. I mean, once Jesus was pronounced guilty, they hauled him off to Golgotha for persecution. So here's the picture I want you to see. Peter, it's the night before his trial, and he's not sitting there fretting. He's not sitting there worrying. What is Peter doing? He is asleep. You say, why was Peter asleep? I'll tell you what I think. This is just my opinion. Nobody can prove it one way or the other. But right before, after Jesus' death, he and Jesus, Peter and Jesus were walking down beside the Sea of Galilee and, and Jesus said something to him. He, he told him, you know, the feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. But then Jesus said this, Peter, when you are old, they will stretch out your hands. 
take you a place you would not want to go. And the Bible says, and this Jesus said, signifying the type of death that Peter would die to glorify God. That, that happened 20-some years after this event. Peter knew, I'm not old yet. Jesus said, I wasn't going to die till I'm old. And that it's going to be, you know, the stretching out of the arms speaks of, of, of crucifixion, which is what happened to Peter in Rome when he was much older than this. I think that's the reason Peter was able to sleep. Because he had a word from Jesus. The Holy Spirit, I believe, reminded him of this word. How many of you know it didn't look good? I mean, this looks like an impossible situation, but G Peter had a word from God in his heart. So what's Peter doing? He's asleep. And don't you think that the devil spoke to Peter and said, God didn't save James? Do you know the devil will use the experiences of other people to try to put fear into you? He'll remind you of somebody else that had something bad happen, somebody else that, you know, didn't get healed or didn't get delivered or whatever. And then the devil will say, it's just the same with you. You're going down the same way. But Peter was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell. And an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. How many of you believe in angels? If you believe the Bible, you've got to believe in angels. And the angel struck him on the side to awaken him. You talk about a deep sleeper. The angel had to smack him. There's a bright light, and that doesn't bother Peter. And the angel has to hit him to wake him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. How many of you believe that God still does miracles? And then the angel told him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat. Isn't it interesting that the angel has to tell him, okay, now, Peter, your sandals... Okay, now put on your shirt. Okay, now put on... Peter, why? Because Peter was still 90% asleep. That's my speculation. And now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. I think Peter was just really out of it. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. This is so supernatural. How many of you know God can do supernatural things in our life? The things that are impossible with men, they are possible with God. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. 
And it's not until verse 11 that it says, Peter finally came to his senses. See, here's something that, that I've found, and especially if you have a certain type of personality and if you're wired a certain way, you may think you have to absolutely figure out everything. How many of you, your mind has been racing over time this year trying to anticipate everything that could possibly happen, what could go wrong, what would happen if this happened, how would we get out of it? Peter didn't know, he didn't have any of that. Do you know, there's something about trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean to your own understanding. Use your brain. God gave you a brain, use it. But I'll tell you what, your brain is not God. God can do some things your brain cannot do. As a matter of fact, some of the greatest things that God will ever do for you in your life, it's not because you're sitting there figuring it all out. Now, the ladies like this statement. God did his most magnificent work while Adam slept. You ladies know what I'm talking about? When God wanted to create woman, the, the crowning glory of man, he didn't say, now Adam, I want you to sit down, diagram this out, give me a schematic. You know, Adam, tell me. When, when God wanted to do the greatest thing he would ever do for man, he knocked man out. Here's the lesson. When you rest, God will work. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. And when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary. Now, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's a few different Marys mentioned. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. Why did he go to Mary's house? Because this is a place where believers gathered. This is a place where in these very early days of the church, it was a, it was a gathering place for believers. It was a place of fellowship. And you know what? When, when we are facing the greatest challenges, we need to know where to go. When, when harassment and pressure, and I'm not just talking about persecution like that, but, but when, when the enemy is throwing his worst at you, there needs to be a place where you know you can go. And what are you going to find? You're going to find believers. We were not meant to do life alone. We were not. I'll tell you, one of the worst things that can happen is when people just get totally isolated. I'm not saying anything against any of the proper hygiene and, you know, proper social distancing and things like that. But even though we may keep six feet and all these different things, we desperately need the faith and the fellowship 
and the agreement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. He went to the home of John Mark, Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. What do we do when the world gives us pressure? We pray. And it goes on to say, he knocked at the door in the gate, and, the, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside. Lord, she leaves Peter locked outside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. And because they were in such strong faith, they said, we knew God is going to answer, would answer our prayers. No. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided, oh, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. I think this is so funny. Because you know what? Sometimes we think that we have to have perfect faith before God will do anything for us. And I'm all for, you know, Jesus talked about people having great faith. I'm all for that. But you know what? Sometimes God does things. And, and we're praying about it. And when God finally does it, we think, oh, that just that couldn't have happened. They were praying for days and days for Peter. And when he shows up at the door, they say, that's impossible. <laughs> How many of you like the verse that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think? And he motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened. Now, that's James, the half-brother of Jesus. That's not the brother James that had been executed. And he went to another place. At dawn, verse 18, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterwards, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. How many of you just, well, I mean, it's terrible that the 16 soldiers got killed. That was kind of how things happened back then. If you, were, if you were charged with guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, it was death for you. Do you ever wonder why in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi and God sends the earthquake and the doors open and the chains fall off, that when the, when the, uh, when the uh, Roman uh, prison guard realized what happened, he took his sword and was about to kill himself. And Paul said, don't. We're still here. 
See, that, that prison guard was going to kill himself because he knew he was going to get killed anyway. He just assumed the prisoners had already escaped. Instead, Paul led him to Jesus. Isn't that good? Thought he was going to die. He ended up getting eternal life. So Herod had all... See, these were brutal days. These were harsh and cruel days. But here's, here's what I want you to see. I didn't just tell you this story to tell you this story. I tell you this story to, let's go back to our original scripture, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. When James died, the story is told in two verses. When Peter is delivered, the story is told in 17 verses. Like I said, I'm not criticizing the Bible. I'm not saying the Bible is wrong. I'm not saying Luke was wrong in the way he wrote anything. I'm just saying that sometimes, and I think sometimes in the church, and this is no criticism of any, I think it's just human nature, you know, you stop and think about a big, big name ministry and, you know, you're on their mailing list and you get their magazine and, and that type of thing. And when you open it up, what, what? And they've got a testimony page. Guess whose testimony is going to be there? Somebody who got something like what Peter got. You know what you're never going to see on the testimony page? is somebody that got what James got. Please, I'm not criticizing anyone. But I'm just saying that sometimes when you, as a Christian, are struggling in an area of your life and you have not experienced a breakthrough, you have not received the great miracle, but you're hearing somebody else give testimony of how God blessed them and how God came through for them and how God provided for them and how God healed them or their loved one. And you're sitting there thinking, but man, I, I'm really, really struggling. Can I tell you something? One of the most important things you can do is you must guard your heart from envy. You have to guard your heart from the lie of the devil that says God loves them more than he loves you. You say, Brother Cook, can you explain why, you know, what, what might people have said to John? Well, you know, John, Peter got delivered. I guess James just didn't have any faith. Can you imagine somebody saying something that cruel and insensitive to the mother and father of James? See, it's so important that we, yes, we want to rejoice with those that rejoice, but, but we also, as the body of Christ, we need to remember to put our arms around and comfort and weep with those that weep. I, I don't know. I've been in ministry for more than 40 years now. I know that just seems absolutely impossible with my youthful good looks, but I've been in ministry more than 40 years. 
And for one thing, I know this is the hardest year that most pastors have ever had. Because pastors are being pulled in so many different directions right now. And I'll tell you what, we need to pull in the direction of Jesus Christ. The gospel. We have to rejoice with those that rejoice, but we also have to weep with those that weep. Those that have experienced loss. I, I've had numerous friends this year that have really suffered in a lot of different ways. And I have other friends that have been a wonderful year. But you know what? If somebody else gets really blessed and you're not feeling quite as blessed, you, just, you need to be bold in your heart. And you need to say, you may need to say, God, I don't know why... They seem to have gotten blessed before me, but, but Lord, we're in the same family. And I'm going to rejoice with them. Because, you know, when, when you rejoice over somebody else's blessing, you know what I think you do? I, I just think you, you kind of position yourself to receive the blessing that's coming your way. But when we envy somebody else and resent them, and, and we not only resent them, but we resent God, then I think we can actually shut ourselves off from the blessing that we were going to receive when maybe we were next in line and didn't even know it. But I want to I look at one other thing here. Just remember... James got two verses. Peter got 17 verses. The great victory report always gets a lot more attention than the, than the story where it doesn't turn out the way we want. But how many of you know our faith in God can't be based on a certain outcome? We have to have faith in God whether we see the right outcome, the outcome we want, or whether we don't see the outcome we want. Our faith is in God, not in a given outcome. So here's a thought. How do we handle it when tragedy happens? How many of you know somebody this year that they've experienced tragedy? They've experienced crisis financially, relationally, physically, health. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, it says, about this time Jesus was informed that Pilate, there's another classy character, right? Pontius Pilate had murdered. Everybody say murdered. murdered. How many of you know God said, don't do that? But he had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. What a low-down, despicable, somebody's worshiping God in the temple, and Pilate has his soldiers go in and murder them while they're worshiping at the temple. How, how bad is that? And what does Jesus say? He says, do you think... Those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked, is that why they suffered? Jesus says, not at all. 
How many of you know many times when people experience problems, even to the point of suffering, it's not because they sinned. How many of you know we live in a fallen world? And sometimes they're just wicked people who do wicked things and, and people, innocent people suffer. And, and we have to get rid of this idea that if somebody suffers, it's only because there's sin in their life. And Jesus says, not at all. And then Jesus says what probably is the most politically incorrect thing that he could possibly say. He says, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. How many of you know when we're talking about some people that just got murdered that you just want to say nice, flowery platitudes and, and kind things and you want to be nice and all that? But Jesus says, no, they weren't sinners, but unless you repent, you will perish also. Jesus understood the seriousness of the momentary situation. But you know what? There's something way more important than the momentary situation. There are the eternal consequences of living life without God. We're not saying Jesus was a discompassionate person. There are other places where Jesus wept. But sometimes people can get so caught up in the momentary crisis that they fail to see the eternal picture. And then Jesus brings up another thing. He says, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Some people would say that Jesus was really not very sympathetic. But Jesus saw something so much bigger than the momentary tragedy. There were two types of tragedies that Jesus addresses here in Luke chapter 13. One was when people were murdered. How many of you know that's a tragedy? And he talked about other people who were, were killed in a construction accident. How many of you know that when there's some you know, construction situation, a building collapses or whatever, and a bunch of people die in, in that. How many of you know that's a, it's a tragedy? Families hurt. People who are close to them feel the pain of that. And I, I do believe that when Jesus said what he said, he wasn't talking to the immediate family members immediately after the situation. This may have been some time before. So he was able to deal with it from, you know, maybe a little bit more distant perspective than just the immediate situation. But here's what Jesus was getting at. In life, there are some disappointing things. People get murdered. People get killed in accidents. We weep with those that weep. Jesus wept. On more than one occasion, Jesus wept. But we have to do more than just engage in the momentary experience 
what do we have to do? We have to look beyond the momentary experience and we have to see that there's an eternity. See, there's so many, so many things going on in our society today. There's so many problems. There's tensions and there's, there's fears and there's suspicions and there's strife and there's division and, and there's, you know, all these things, even, you know, brother turning against brother about different things. And, and I understand, you know, that people feel very passionately about these things. But above and beyond all that, we have to do what Jesus said. And we have to look at the most important thing of all, and that's not the temporal friction. It's not the temporal problems. It's not the temporal issues. It's the question of eternity. And that's why the church, that's why the church must have as its first, its primary, its paramount, its overriding mission. And that is, we are here to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and it's His death, His burial, His resurrection, the shedding of His blood, that that is our message. It is a message about Jesus. It's a message about one who said, I, if I... If I go away, I will prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. Listen, there are more problems in our world today. And, and there are so many things that you look at this and you look at that and you look at the other. And, and if you're not careful, you will find yourself so overwhelmed, overconsumed with fear and with anxiety. But I'll tell you what, we need to pray for everybody, that God will raise up people with wisdom to deal with all these temporal things, and God may use you to deal with some of the temporal issues of, of life, but I'll tell you what, the church's overriding message is that Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus lives again. And our message is... And we don't say this in harshness. We don't say this with a judgmental attitude. But we say it like Jesus said. And we say it to the world. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Somebody can live a comfortable life. They can make a lot of money. They can do all kinds of things. But if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. We have to keep eternity on the front burner. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for the practicality of the fact that we're family, that we can love one another, that we can celebrate each other's victories. And Lord, we can weep with each other when, when somebody's facing a hard time. Lord, none of us are better than each other. None of us are inferior to each other, Lord. As we put our faith in you, we are the children of God. We've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're still in this world and we face and see some of the tribulation of this world. But God, even though we're in this world, we're not of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're children of the Most High God. And Lord, may we always remember who we are and what our primary, overriding, paramount mission is 
and that is to tell people about Jesus Christ and that people can put their faith in him and, and they can be born again and they can have freedom from guilt, sin, shame, and condemnation and they can know the liberty of being a child of God, knowing that their sins are forgiven, knowing that they've been made righteous, knowing that they have an eternal home in heaven. Thank you for listening to the Rock Church and World Outreach Center. If this message spoke to you, please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more information at www.rockchurch.com.